I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the first series of our new podcast, Six Queens, where queenship reigns supreme. So this episode, we are going to be letting our queens introduce themselves in a little bit more detail and really getting them to showcase a little bit about them and about their relationship with Henry and what we can learn from that. So what we're ultimately going to be discussing is their symbols that um, surrounded them and their badges and the mottos. For those who don't know, when one of our queens married Henry and became queen, they chose or um, something was chosen for them, a badge, which is like a symbol that represents them, but also a motto that um, stays with them throughout their queenship and is the ideal that they aspire to. And what's really interesting is that some of these are really indicative of personality and some of them are a little hard to make out. So we're going to be going through and looking at how all of these things introduce the queens to us. So I think in that case, a good place to start would be, as Julie Andrews says, at the beginning, because it's a very good place to start. So Catherine's um, motto that she chose was humble and loyal. And the badge that she chose was the pomegranate. What's interesting about Catherine's pomegranate, and I think with with her, we could just have a whole episode on just talking about the pomegranate and the significant, for your sake as listeners, we're not going to do that. Um, So we're trying to keep it as short and sweet as we can. the pomegranate itself for Catherine held a lot of significance, especially as a foreign princess and then later queen of Henry VIII. Um, coming from Spain to England, she, you know, for that physical separation from home, I think must have been incredibly daunting for her. So she always had this sort of reminder of home with her, with her, her pomegranate, which was incorporated into the Spanish royal coat of arms. But what I think is also really important is. Um, with the pomegranate is understanding its significance and I think this is what makes Catherine's symbol um, or badge rather what probably one of the sad is I don't know if you would agree Kate but you know it being that symbol for fertility and then ultimately her only being able to give Henry one daughter and it, that being the source of her downfall I think is it's really sad. Yeah, a a pomegranate, for those of you who have ever cut into one, the biggest thing that I think sticks in the mind about a pomegranate is how many seeds are in it. And it's this idea of um, Catherine herself, I guess, being a pomegranate and literally having all of these seeds and the fertility. And yet, I mean, she she was able to conceive a lot, but she ultimately sort of failed in that duty. She was not able to produce many living children. So yeah, there's a tragic irony to her picking that symbol because of her her purpose as a queen consort, giving Henry children, and yet not being able to do that. And yes, that being her downfall. And I think the other side of the pomegranate, again, probably for someone like Catherine, where it has significance, is within that Christian iconography and that ideals about resurrection. And I think, again, going back to that idea of fertility and kind of being full of seed, that, you know, her being able to resurrect that Tudor dynasty and kind of create it and keep it going. I I don't think it would have been an irony that would have been lost on her or those around her, um, which I think for me is quite possibly one of the saddest things. Another thing that really strikes me about the pomegranate, Catherine's pomegranate in particular, is how often you see it. So one of the reasons why we talk about these badges is because they are 
physically a part of a lot of the spaces that these queens inhabit. It's it really is the branding. It's, you know, as much as Tudor roses are included in places, the pomegranate, for example, would be included next to it. The example that springs to mind is at Hampton Court. For anyone who's uh, had the chance to go to Hampton Court, right outside the Great Hall, there's a doorway that has a carving of a Tudor rose entwined with a pomegranate, which is a symbol of Henry and Catherine's marriage. So it's not necessarily just something that, you know, Catherine has privately, you know, these images of a pomegranate like embroidered onto stuff. It's very, it's very public. So it it makes it even more tragic, really, that all of these people are associating her with the symbol of fertility, and yet it's not it's not happening. I just kind of want to go back to that point that you picked up on about it being very visible at Hampton Court and, you know, being seen alongside that that Tudor Rose, because I think there's something enduring about Catherine's symbol with the pomegranate as well. Um, even after, you know, Henry divorced her, it's, it's still being used, it's still being seen. And while there are some attempts to kind of cover it up, there's not that immediate detachment that Henry had with Catherine as he did with Anne, with that, you know, that destruction of her falcon and any kind of imagery associated with her. Personally, I think it's quite telling of maybe his feelings of Anne as opposed to Catherine and also that kind of public consciousness of Catherine. That's a fantastic segue for me talking about Anne Boleyn, because one of the things I find so striking about Anne Boleyn's personal badge, which was a falcon, is how much she used it in everything. And I think that speaks to how prevalent Catherine's pomegranate was because suddenly the pomegranate's gone, Catherine's gone, Anne has to put her falcon everywhere to assert that she is now the queen. So you see Anne Boleyn's falcon on everything, like um, art that's associated with Anne, manuscripts associated with Anne. Uh, Hans Holbein creates like, silver plate and goblets with falcons all over them. It's it's Anne's PR move to replace the pomegranate. So yes, Anne, Anne's symbol was a falcon, uh, specifically a white or silver peregrine falcon. This was for two reasons, sort of like Catherine's. It had a family connection. Anne's father had just been declared the heir of the house of uh, the Earls of Ormond, which is a uh, earldom in Ireland, and their symbol is a falcon. So it was showing that she does come from nobility, even if that claim is sort of tenuous. But it also, a falcon is a, a bird of prey. It's a bird that hunts to achieve an object. It flies for an object. So uh, that's a very blatant connection to Anne's pursuit of Henry or Henry's pursuit of Anne, whichever you think. What's interesting about her falcon is that it's actually sitting on top of a tree stump or a woodstock. And from that woodstock, there are roses sprouting. The tree stump is a symbol of a an interrupted life, something that is lifeless that was once alive. And the idea of the roses growing out of it is that she's bringing new life to this thing thought dead. So uh, the idea being, very, again, very blatantly that Anne's going to bring new life to the Tudor dynasty where Catherine wasn't able to. What I like about Anne's is, um, as we said in the beginning, it's one of those that actually shows her personality and her motives very clearly. We know that she most likely designed it herself because the elements of it are so deeply symbolic and they are so representative of her and her cause and her perceived position coming into Catherine's throne. 
you know, the falcon is seen as a very aggressive bird. It's a bird of prey. It's graceful and it's beautiful, but ultimately it is a very strong bird. And um, you see there is an example on a sheet of music written for Anne Boleyn of a falcon pecking out a pomegranate. So it's it's sort of the the symbolic representation of Anne's bird being dominant over the the uh, Catherine's pomegranate, which is sort of a sentient object in this case. <laughs> I oh, it's brilliant. I just think it's so deliciously petty, and also it just does really well to serve a point that you know if you're paying attention, there is just every opportunity to you know play the game of court and just to play that game of politics and just yeah. take a swipe at anybody where possible I just think it's so it's very Anne it, it is very I, Anne. I love it yeah I, that's I, why I, think I, I, think... I really like all of her symbology and her motto is kind of the same way it's not this sort of generic like I'm going to be humble and loyal because I'm a woman her chosen motto as queen was the most happy uh, which is uh, the one that appears on a commemorative coin which is believed to uh, commemorate her becoming pregnant uh, after Elizabeth. So with, you know, this time it'll be a boy. It says Anne Boleyn, the most happy, which, so we think that was her motto. And it's so unlike all the other ones. I mean, as you'll hear when we go into the other ones, and because it just shows all of this personality, it's, it's a very assertive political motto of like, I'm here, I don't care what you think. I love that idea of the most happy sitting either side of Catherine of Aragon, again, that humble and loyal. And then also segueing onto Jane Seymour, whose motto was uh, bound to obey and serve. Again, it's that dichotomy of personality and that idea of who we can see having influence and autonomy over themselves, I think is quite fun. Um, So just maybe sliding on over then to have a chat about Jane Seymour and with her, a bit like Anne, I think in a sense, there's a lot to unpack with her symbol because um, what she had was a crowned phoenix rising out of a castle with red and white roses. Um, so again, a lot like Anne in that sense, it does a lot going on. And again, I think we talk for forever really about the idea of the phoenix and what it represented. But traditionally, the idea of the phoenix was um, to do with rebirth and um, kind of renewal. Which, again, I think if we take that as a direct contrast of the immediate event of, you know, her becoming queen after Anne's downfall, it's quite a powerful image in and of itself. For me, at least, there does tend to be that idea of Jane Seymour, you know, being that like that loyal wife and, you know, serving and doing the right thing. But I don't know. What do you think? Do you think there's an air of pettiness about it or an air of I'm here to stay? I don't think it's petty or at least I don't think that's the right word to describe it. I mean, there is some element of I win, you lose. But I do think it's a lot more powerful than that, because it's also also worth mentioning that the phoenix not only became Jane's symbol, but it became the symbol of her family as well, of her brothers who were promoted by Henry VIII and are suddenly these high-ranking nobles in court. So it's this idea of, um, yeah, like you said, the Seymours are here to stay. The Seymours are powerful again. No, and I think that's a really good point that you pick up on, um, especially about her brothers, because like you said, they they do become formidable you know political players in their own right and I think that also really feeds into that that motto that Jane picked as well I think it's kind of like a family rallying point you know it almost comes out as you know toe the line you know you've got to do what you've got to do but you know better things are going to come if you obey and do as you're told I think that's quite interesting and 
Jane is often, I think, rightly so, depicted as the antithesis of Anne Boleyn. Whether or not that was true or that was a political move by her own design, Jane is seen as the one who is not as willful as Anne, who is more submissive than Anne, who is more of an ideal wife than Anne. So the motto, bound to obey and serve, really drives that point home. Jane's not the most happy. She's not reveling in anything. She's there for Henry. She is there to obey his whim. For sure. And I don't think we can ignore that either. I can see you shaking your head. (laughs) So I think it's important that we talk about that because, you know, Jane was there. She saw what happened to Anne. And I think there has to be an element of, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to be me. That can't be me. I think in in that case, and that idea of fashioning herself as the aunt, as almost you know, like you said, the Auntie Anne is is really is really important. What I also find really lovely with, especially when we are thinking about Jane Seymour's um, motto and her 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 badge is her epitaph. So uh, thinking about that epitaph for her and that idea, I suppose, of her really breathing new life into to the Tudor dynasty um, when it reads. Here a phoenix lieth, whose death to another phoenix gave breath. It is much, uh, it is lamented much. The world once uh, never knew two such. I don't know. I think there's something really beautiful and really quite touching about that idea being used in regards to such a powerful image. In this case, Jane herself is the phoenix giving new life to Henry after uh, the drama with the Boleyns. You know, it's Jane and the Seymours rising from the Boleyn ashes. But in this case... It's also she's giving new life to the Tudor dynasty in the form of her son, who she died giving birth to. Uh, that is that is very powerful imagery. And it makes sense why then the Seymours would keep the Phoenix as their badge for many years, because this is uh, their legacy. 100%. Once Jane died, of course, uh, the next queen to come in was Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves doesn't have a lot of information surrounding her um, her queenly symbology, simply because she was not queen for very long. We, uh, we do have a motto for Anne of Cleves, which is God send me well to keep. This idea that she is being sent to fulfill a duty as the new wife of the King of England. As far as a badge, it gets a little complicated. Anne doesn't have a badge of her own. The one that's most associated with her is uh, part of the Ducal Crest of Cleves, which is a carbuncle, a shield. And in this case, it is a gold carbuncle. And this is interesting because unlike the other queens, this is a very blatant display of her own heritage. This is Anne coming in and saying that she's a princess, basically, in her own right. It's uh, showing her her heritage. The symbol that she did use when she was a princess, so not when she was a queen, but I think this shows a little bit more of her personality, is uh, two white swans, which together represents innocence and sincerity. So this idea that she is this ideal maiden waiting to have a husband. I think it's interesting that, you know, you pick up on that idea of her emulating her family duty and kind of responsibility and that familial connection when she came to England as a queen because I think 
it sits almost in direct contrast to Catherine of Aragon, who, yes, picked the pomegranate. Yes, it's reminiscent of her home, but that, you know, that took on a life of its own and became shorthand for Queen Catherine of Aragon, where, for, for, you know, Anacles, it, it never really did that. I suppose, to your point, it, she, she didn't really have the chance, unlike Catherine, who had about 20 odd years to do it. So I, I, I do wonder if, you know, if she had the chance it would have done the same thing but I, I don't see it doing that because I think there was something so powerful with Catherine of Aragon's pomegranate and her as a queen that the others maybe lacked. Yes this is certainly one that doesn't necessarily show Anne's personality and that could just be because she didn't have time to decide on a badge of her own or else it wasn't circulated because there was no time or it could be that um, in making this alliance, her, her brother in Cleves wanted to make clear that uh, his sister, somebody from his house, was now the Queen of England, which is an incredibly high status role. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say. And I think it's not any reflection on Anne, you know, like, oh, this doesn't show her personality. She had none. It's just uh, the amount of time, the lack of time. Which I, I think for her is a bit of a shame. But, you know, I think with her, we often know that she was never very happy as queen. So the fact that she got out of it quite quickly and, you know, her and Henry enjoyed that kind of very close bond is maybe more telling about any iconography that we have. Yeah, it's why I, I brought in the swans just to give something of hers <laughs> that was um, a little bit along the lines of the others. But um, again, two white swans, which is a, a, a very often used symbol of um, maidenhood, is um, doesn't say much about her either really it's uh it's it's fairly commonly used and it's an ideal that Anne certainly wanted would have wanted to promote if she's being um you know put on the marriage market as it were <laughs> I yeah I, I, I definitely think you're right there but what is strange is that wife number four and five so Anacles and Catherine Howard both of their symbols and both of their mottos you know, are again, you know, don't really say too much about them. So with Catherine Howard, um, we've got a motto of no other will than his. Now, the no other the his, you know, very obvious, you know, we're talking about Henry here. And uh, her her symbol that and her badge that she had was a crowned uh Tudor rose, uh, but it was thornless. So I think that's quite an important point to stress. So it was a crowned red and white thornless Tudor rose. Now, because we we know so very, very little about Catherine Howard, you know, there's a lot of speculation about her early life and what really happened to her. I think it's quite hard to try and pull any discernible identity out of that. But what I do think is interesting is the idea of the medal that was commissioned to celebrate their marriage so on the medal itself it was what it effectively said a rose without a thorn so you know I you got that ideal that you know she's going to be the you know quiet ideal wife she wasn't going to cause any way she wasn't going to cause him any issues and I'm laughing because I just I just think it's fantastic again the irony <laughs> that's kind of caught up in that and um, so I think my question with that and maybe surrounding the mottos and the badges more generally is who really picked them and you know how much personal identity is there as opposed to how much familial identity is there is in there but I think with Catherine Howard especially I think there's definitely a driving force of that Howard family trying to distance themselves from the Bolin downfall 
for me, I would interpret it as a mixture of two things. The first being, like you said, the, the Howards, who were also the people who were related to Anne Boleyn and sort of put her in the path of Henry and ultimately had to step away once that fell out spectacularly. Um, it was them trying to reassert themselves as servants of the crown, this idea that they are presenting Henry with the ideal rose without a thorn. So I do think that they definitely, that was that was a big driving factor in selecting this iconography. But I also think that Catherine being so young, I mean, she was 16, 17. We don't, yeah. we don't quite know when she was born, but her being so young, I don't know about you, but when I was 16 and 17, I didn't really have a clear idea of who I was and what my motives were as a politician. Um, so it could <laughs> just be that she went with the, the thing that was the most stereotypical, the Tudor's roses. And it worked. I mean, she did choose a good badge and she had a good image for herself as the rose without a thorn. It appealed to her new husband because it was not individualistic. It was very much a reflection of him. Uh, I think that her, yeah, I think her age had a lot to do with it. The, this idea that she was tragically so young that she didn't really have time to develop any of this culture around herself. I definitely think there is something to be said for what you've just said about her age. You know, she, like you said, you know, she was 16, 17 years old. I think, you know, she, she, she lacked that sort of worldly presence that, you know, other people like Catherine and Anne definitely had. We're expecting her to compete on that same sort of level and that same, have that same strong sense of self. You know, I don't necessarily think what, she, you know, her symbol was a bad one. I think it was very fitting for her. And I think we definitely need to remember that and stop having this idea of it being almost hilariously ironic. We, we discussed Catherine's pomegranate as being tragically ironic because she was ultimately unable to be the fertile pomegranate. The way I've always seen Catherine thornless rose perceived is that how ironic that this is the one that cheated on Henry is, you know, his rose without a thorn when ultimately it should be seen as tragically as Catherine's pomegranate. You're setting up a 17-year-old to fail. You know, you're basically saying that she has no faults at all. So then when she does ultimately fail, it's that much more uh, poignant, I think. For sure. And like you said, I think we're all, we're all in danger of doing that. And I think, again, putting her within the context of where, where she was, this wasn't someone, again, like we said, who was adept to the world of court and politics. She didn't have that traditional noble upbringing. And we, again, we know very little about her and we know even less about her education. So, yeah, I, I, there is definitely a, a point for pause here when we, when we do talk about her. Lastly, we have Catherine Parr, who is the sixth and final of our queens. And I think personally, her badges and um, her motto says a lot about her, but it's not, maybe not quite as complex as, say, Anne Boleyn's or Jane Seymour's. Catherine's badge is a maiden rising from a Tudor rose. Specifically, the maiden is St. Catherine of Alexandria, who was Catherine's patron saint. St. Catherine is known for piety and loyalty, and this is something that the Parr family used in their iconography quite a bit. So it does have that connection to Catherine's family, but it also is very personal because a patron saint who is often the saint with the same name as you, or maybe you were born on a saint's day, somebody who is with you your whole life. So Catherine, even before she was married to Henry, would use uh, wheels, Catherine wheels, which is a symbol of St. Catherine of Alexandria. So it only makes sense for her, I think, to continue using this as 
um, a symbol of herself as a person. So it shows great individuality, in my opinion. It's interesting that hers is the most overtly religious and kind of that expression of kind of saints and things like that. You know, especially when we're talking about people like Catherine of Aragon, whose faith was you know, the be all and end all for them. And I think that's quite an interesting point that you, you picked up on. We tend to think of her more as like, you know, an education reform and a religious reformer. So I think it's quite interesting that a saint, which is, you know, traditionally that kind of associated with Catholicism is an one that she uses. I do think, though, that however maybe odd it is that somebody with such Lutheran tendencies would use a saint, I do think that if you grew up with something and if you identified so strongly with a guardian, really, this what these saints were to a lot of people. If you grew up sort of viewing St. Catherine as somebody who was there for you and who you could identify with in any of her traits, it would um, it would stick with you even if you're not necessarily say praying to her because of your reformed religious beliefs. It's lovely and personal, and it's a very it gives you a very intimate reflection about her way of thinking about herself. Where she doesn't show individuality, in my opinion, is through her motto, which almost feeds more into the stereotype we have of her as the the nurse and the companion for Henry in his final days. Her motto is to be useful in all that I do. And to me, that stereotypical image of Catherine as a nurse tending Henry's wounds comes to the forefront of my mind, even though I know that it's not true. And I think that's a really hard thing to kind of escape from. So like you said, with with that motto, and I think it very much instills that idea of what it means to be a 16th century wife or queen. And I think in a, in a sense, it's almost very reminiscent of Jane Seymour's, you know, that honour and obey, but, you know, talking about utility instead. I will say, I do think it's not as extreme as, say, um, humble and loyal or bound to obey and serve or even no other will than his. She's going to be useful which I think is a very clever way to say it. She wants to be useful. She wants to help, but she doesn't necessarily want to be ruled, maybe like the other one. So I will, I'll take it back. I will say that there does, there, there is a hint of her personality in there. This idea that she, in her own right, is a very well-educated woman who is capable of doing things for herself. But and to me, it is interesting looking at it knowing the stereotype that grew up around her, this idea of her as the nurse and the companion and the person who takes care of Henry while he's, you know, ailing and he's about to die. It just, it's almost, I'm thinking, you know, Catherine, you should have, you should have known that this was coming. You should have picked better. But it is, useful is a very interesting word, I will say. I do. I think, I always think the word useful is interesting, but I don't know. I Worth pondering over. For sure. And we do have to keep in mind that with all of them, not just Catherine's, they are very particularly chosen. It's not like they just came to Catherine one day after she had accepted the king's marriage proposal and said, hey, what do you think you want your motto to be? This is something that Catherine thought over. This was something that her family and other advisors thought over. This is something that the king and his advisors had to approve. So we should make clear how just political these are. It's not just the queens wanting to tell us about themselves as people. This is them telling us about them as queens and what their 
political use is going to be. There are some exceptions. I think Anne flirts with this whole individualistic thing a lot more than the others, but it's all very curated. It's all it's chosen all for a reason and the wording has to be perfect. And I think it's interesting that you pick up on that point because even for someone like Catherine of Aragon, who, you know, as we know, was married to Henry VIII's brother previously, um, before he died, um, quite suddenly, her pomegranate wasn't actually signed off until she married Henry in 1509. And you, that's a that's a long time coming. She'd been in England a while, just over ten years at this point. You know, it'd been a long time coming for her. You, like, like you said, that they're not just chosen on a whim; they are specific. And again, I think there is that idea then of a public personality and a private personality and where do you draw the line between the two how much of these women are reflected in that you know how much is their family or something like that my concluding question for for you but for both of us is having gone through all of the badges and the symbols when we go through them let's go one by one again what do you think it says about them going forward because we're using this episode to introduce our main characters as it were going forward so what do you think if you had to summarize what do you think each thing says about them and we'll start with Catherine of Aragon oh I think I think for her it's sort of that idea of wanting to show the richness of her heritage but also that need of like looking to the future you know go back to that idea in that discussion that we had earlier about you know being full of seeds and um kind of rebirth and kind of regeneration I think I think yeah for her definitely that dichotomy of looking to the past looking where I come from that strong idea of familial self and the future what well, how about you what do you think about Anne I think Anne I mean I've said it probably a hundred times by now in the recording of this episode I think Anne's is the most fun of all of them just because it shows her personality so well, not just her herself, but her political personality in that you know, she's chosen a bird of prey that it does have connections to uh, her, her family legacy, but it also is her as an animal. You know, if I had to associate Anne Boleyn with an animal, I probably would pick a bird of prey because of, you know, <laughs> the 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 beauty and it's it's enigmatic and but it also it knows what it wants and it goes after what it wants in terms of the motto i think what the motto says about her is that she's reveling in her role and she until the end that's what she did she really liked having the role of queen even if she ultimately didn't enjoy it at the end i definitely think you're right with anne i think you know she's one of those people that had she been a theatrical kid at school you know give her a stage and she would have thrived and would have been like you know president of that drama club or something but yeah I definitely think you're right and I and I like the idea that you she she ultimately said you know I am happy I am having fun like you know I'm living my best life for want of a better phrase I think it's very reassuring in a sense and very comforting that she could just be outwardly herself while being politically engaged and I like how the connection between the the falcon and then later the phoenix very well illustrates the the transition from Anne Boleyn to Jane Seymour. Oh yeah, definitely. Again, I think what's different with these two, it, it is that motto that sets them apart. Again, that idea of being ne- necessarily that anti-Anne and kind of fitting the mold that Henry wants. Again, whether or not 
that's who she really was. I think that again, that's a question for a different day and something that you know I'm sure people could argue over for for the longest time. But yes, I like the idea that she's reflecting Anne with choosing a bird, but saying something very different. And I think it's hard to draw many conclusions from the next two, from Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard, <laughs> just because well, their tenure wasn't very long, first of all, but also it doesn't show a lot of individuality and political strategy like these uh, like uh, Anne and Jane's these last two so what I guess what we can say about them is for Anne of Cleves that she wasn't queen for very long so she chose to display her heritage and her status as a princess which very smart I mean you're coming over to become the queen of England you might as well show off your pedigree and I think something very similar could be said for Catherine Howard in the sense that for both of them simplicity is key you know, what do you do? You effectively got two blank canvases, you know, they're not established court players or, you know, haven't stolen the king's heart very publicly, you know, especially for Anna Cleves. What do we do? And, and I think that's true of both of them. They, they, they don't understand the world they've just entered. So why not stick with something safe? And to the lack of personality in their badges sort of aligns with the how little we know about them. I mean, we know a little bit more about Anne of Cleves because she sticks around in England. She becomes a member of the court. We can kind of make inferences as to her personality based on reactions to her. But we really don't know her that well as a person. And these symbols reflect that. And that's certainly true of Catherine Howard, just because there are no sources about her early life. And she died so young that we really never got the chance to see her as, you know, as an adult in her final form. Yeah, and I think that is that is really the saddest thing for them. And I think, you know, there there is an air of, you call it irony, call it sadness, running through each of them, really. You know, even if you look at Jane Seymour's, yes, you know, we've got that phoenix rising from the ashes. And it's, again, like you said earlier, it was picked up by the rest of the Seymour family. And, you know, they ran with it. And, you know, you had Edward. But at what cost? You know, was, was that kind of emblematic of her being that phoenix? burning as bright as it possibly could before it burnt out I don't I, I don't know at that point I am just talking out loud but it, it again, was very I, poetic oh thank you thank you dear. <laughs> um but I am um, yeah I definitely think there's there is you know running through all it like I said that that call it irony call it sadness but there's something there in each of them that we need to take the time to see but I don't know bring bring us home tell me your thoughts on Catherine Parr what what do you think that says about her Catherine Parham half and half, because as I said, the mono is a bit jarring for me. This idea of her being useful is not something that I associate with her knowing her as, as an individual. But I do admire her badge because she uses her patron saint, something that is extremely indicative of her as a person. This is somebody who she probably grew up identifying herself with. So Whereas other queens are putting out their heraldry, they're putting out symbols of their parents' conquests of another country, Catherine is putting out her patron saint. And I, I, I really like that. I think it just shows that she is very, very strong and she knows herself very well. She's very mature. And I think that's a really nice place to end with someone that is sure of themselves and they know themselves. She had time to grow up. She had time to develop that idea of self. And I think there's something really lovely about that, about the fact that they were never equals in that sense, but, you know, they they were well matched in that intellectual capacity. 
it was fun doing research for this episode and figuring out that this was the way that we wanted the queens to introduce themselves. I think simply because of how well most of the symbols fit the story. I mean, a lot of the queens chose these before they ultimately, well, I mean, certainly, but they didn't know what was going to happen to them. So I think certain things, you know, like you were saying about the phoenix, you know, burning bright before it too goes out and um, the the irony of Catherine Howard being the thornless rose. I, I just, I how well, for better or worse, it ends up fitting these women and their stories. I think it's a really great way to consider them and consider their stories before we we go forward and we talk about things a little bit more broadly and thematically. Yeah, and what I hopefully, um, my hope from this one is that we've introduced people, people, our listeners, or you guys, to them well enough that you, you you know, whether you come spend time with us, you know, go go do your own reading, whatever it is you want to do, that spark that intellectual curiosity to find out more about them. I think that's always my biggest hope. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our new podcast. In the next episode, Kate and I will continue your introduction by discussing queenship and what it meant to be a 16th century English queen. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, and read more about the queens on our website. There you will also find a full transcript of this episode, plus the resources we use to prepare for this conversation. Long live the queens!